0: If you have your Bibles, I do invite you to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 2 as we complete this chapter. As we enter into the season of Lent, this is an opportunity. Um, It's one of those seasonal changes in the the life of the church. Um, And it's an opportunity for God's people to to do things a little differently. Um, It may be to... um, part of the goal of Lent is to free us somewhat from the distractions of the world and and to give us some space uh, to draw near to God, to make that a high priority uh, during these six weeks. And to that end, one of the things that we are encouraging um, our church to do is to enter into um, a 40-day prayer covenant. And we've done this in previous years, so for most of you, this is not a new thing. Um, and so, what we're um, asking you to consider is to agree to pray for 40 days this 10 line prayer and to do this in conjun- it with someone else. So, the, the covenant that you're making is both with the Lord and with another person. So, you're, you're praying this 10 line prayer for yourself, and then you're going to take, you know, two or three lines at least. You could pray more lines, and to pray that prayer. For your part, your prayer partner, and then I'm hoping that that would be a jumping-off place to pray more specifically for um, the needs that you know they may have. The brilliance of this is that you know when you're making a, a kind of promise to pray this prayer for 40 days, it helps increase your prayer life. That's part of the brilliance of it. The lines that you're praying each had to do with a, just a significant. Um, aspect of the Christian life. So it's reminding us in part of what it means to follow Jesus. And as we do this together, I I just, um, in years past when we've done this, and we've had close to a 100 people um, engaging in the prayer covenant at the same time, there's a sense, uh, you can feel it in the life of the church, just the, the special presence of the Lord. So let me encourage you once again to um, sign up. And there are a couple tables in the foyer where you can do this, um, where you just sign your name and the name of the person you're praying for. And if you'd like to pray for more than one person, you are welcome to do that. And what I do is I take these cards and I I, um, uh, write down all the names and and I pray for each of those individuals, usually along with their families every day for 40 days. Um, So I'll be praying with you and I hope that you'll be praying for me as part of that 40-day prayer covenant. So take advantage of this. It's, um, it's designed just to be an instrument. And, and again, if you miss a day here and there, that's not a big deal. Just finish the 40 days. <laughs> and, and the goal is to help increase and strengthen your prayer life and our prayer life as a church. Well, and now as we turn our attention to 2 Corinthians, Paul is continuing his defense of his ministry that in his absence from this church, so he spent roughly a year and a half planting this church, um, and now he is on his third missionary journey, um, and he has visited this church earlier and discovered that this church is somewhat in rebellion to his apostolic ministry and teaching among the people. So there are those that have arisen within the church um, that have opposed the Apostle Paul for various reasons. One being, you know, he changed his travel plans, and this is being used against him. But in this passage, it seems like he's coming back to an earlier issue, and that is that the level and degree of suffering that the Apostle was experiencing was being interpreted by some in the church of Corinth as a sign that God was not with him, as a sign that Paul may not really be an apostle when you look at the suffering uh, that he was enduring. And the result of this is, um, his again, his, his apostolic authority is being undermined but not just his authority but also his teaching and his preaching and this is creating division of course you can imagine within the church it's a rupture in their relationship with him and um and so paul uh, at the heart of second of corinthians is this this need to defend um his ap- apostolic authority and that's where he's going here and what he's showing uh, um largely in this passage is that God's power and presence can actually be revealed through suffering. Now, I do think, and I'll I'll repeat this, there's something unique going on with respect to the calling that Christ has given specifically to the Apostle Paul. And so when he uses the we, that, that plural pronoun, we or us, most scholars understand that, that Paul's really using that. It's like the, the royal we. He's using the plural to really speak of himself, of his own ministry. Um, and so in some sense, what he says here has specific relevance for the, the, the particular calling that Christ had given to him. But as we work through this, there's the, the secondary kind of application for all of us. And that is, as we, um, as we follow Jesus... Part of the challenge that Christ has laid on all of his people is to pour our lives out for the sake of Christ, for the sake of his kingdom, for the sake of others. Part of God's calling for all of his people, it may not to be persecuted the way the apostle um, was persecuted, but it is in a sense to be spent, to spend our lives for the sake of Christ and for the sake of others. With that in mind, would you stand for the reading and hearing of the word of God? This is 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. Paul writes, When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was opened to me in the Lord, My spirit was not at rest, because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved, and among those who are perishing To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the others, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not, like so many, peddlers of God's word. But as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. Would you pray with me? Almighty, eternal, gracious Father, We give you thanks for providing us with food that produces life and joy and peace. Lord, you are good and your mercies endure forever. So we come knowing that our request is itself tainted with selfish ambition. But nevertheless, we pray that you would give to all of us the gift of the Holy Spirit so that we might grow in wisdom and understanding and strength. And we ask this not just for our own benefits, though we will benefit, but we ask it ultimately that the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, might be praised everywhere. In his name, amen. You may be seated. The apostle begins in verses 12 and 13 by once again expressing his deep concern for the Corinthians. Paul describes another change that apparently was made in his travel plans. Uh, after traveling to the port city of Troas, which was on the eastern coast of modern day Turkey, okay, so um, he, he's in um, the, the eastern portion of Turkey. Paul explains that in spite of having an open door for, for Christian preaching and teaching in this port city, Uh, He, in fact, um, leaves, he he departs without taking advantage of that opportunity, taking a boat across uh, the Aegean Sea to northern Macedonia. Verse 13 tells us the reason for this departure. Paul writes, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. Now, what is he referring to? The Apostle Paul has given Titus, one of his co-workers, this severe letter for the Corinthians. It was a letter that was of, um, it had rebuke for the whole church with um, special admonishment for a particular offender within the church, apparently the leader of this group that was rebelling against the Apostle and his teaching. And um, apparently Paul had made um, arrangements with Titus to meet him in this port city of Troas, um, to, to give a report. How did the Corinthians respond to his letter? How, you know, what was it positive? Did they reject it out of hand? And w- what we're told is is that Titus somehow delayed. He never makes it to Troas. And so um, even though what, what Paul says is there are opportunities here for gospel ministry, uh, apparently at places he could go and preach and teach, But in spite of those opportunities, he says, my spirit was not at rest. Meaning, he was experiencing deep mental anguish. He had anxiety about what was happening in Corinth. He he didn't know. And because of the mental anguish that he was experiencing, he couldn't stay and continue with his ministry there. And so he, he travels across the Aegean Sea to northern Macedonia, which would have been part of the travel uh, route that Titus would have taken to meet with the apostle. And so um, Paul uh, is troubled in his spirit, and he can talk in other places about rejoicing. He can talk about his joy in the Lord. Um, and in fact, in verse 14, he talks about his gratitude uh, for God. But this does not take away From the reality that Paul also experienced deep um, mental anguish, you know you you can imagine what he's describing here is: is, I can't sleep, I I can't, I've lost my appetite, I can't even conduct gospel ministry until I know what's happening. How how is the church at Corinth doing? How are they responding to this letter? It's worth noting. Um, and pointing out that Paul counts this mental anguish as one of the great ways in which he suffered on behalf of Christ and the gospel. Uh, Just turning over to chapter 11, Paul works through a litany of ways in which he was called to suffer on behalf of Christ and and the gospel. And then in verse 28, he concludes this litany, this long list of, of amazing uh, persecution and suffering with these words. He says, and apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. He connects his experience of just this this personal um, uh, worry. You know, you call it worry, call it concern. And we might say, well, that's unspiritual, And sometimes we're tempted to place, you know, the great saints on this kind of pedestal where they never experience deep doubts or they never experience this kind of anxiety, perhaps leading to depression, Um, but not so. The Apostle Paul was a godly man, and he nevertheless experiences great mental anguish. And and this is actually encouraging in in this sense that we may not be called to experience, you uh, stoning the way the apostle was. He was beaten with the, the cat of nine tails, you know, the lashes, 40 lashes minus one on, on three occasions. Uh, he was beaten with rods. Um, you know, he went without uh, uh, food for times. He's shipwrecked and so forth. We may never experience those kinds of um, uh, uh, persecution or suffering, but most of us who are following Christ We will, we will be um, called to experience this kind of suffering. This kind of deep concern that wells up for that good friend. Who you see, you, you, were raised with and, and they followed Christ and, and then suddenly they're making this shift in their life where they're just, you know, caught up in, in the stream of, of the world. And, and you can see that they, they're departing. They're, they're making this detour away from, from following Christ. And your soul, your heart goes out to them. It may be a loved one. It may be a spouse. It may be, um, a child. It could be a nephew, a niece. We so often, as we follow Christ and we long for the good of others and our relationship with them, um, we experience this same kind of anguish. And and what Paul is also showing us, this is um, in some ways part of our calling. This is something you can't avoid. This is something that you will experience if you are yourselves seeking to serve Christ. Paul then moves to reiterate his central point. That is that God's power, actually, his presence are, are revealed through our suffering uh, when we suffer out of faith, out of our commitment and devotion to Christ. Paul makes this point when he describes how he is led by Christ in triumphal possess, uh, procession. Verse 14 Paul writes, "But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession." Now, on the first reading, this sounds like victory, but that's not the image that Paul is bringing forward here. The image of the triumphal procession was a well. This, he's using this as a metaphor. It was a well-known um, uh, event. And it was similar to the kinds of parades uh, that we might have, you know, in our local cities, after a local professional sports team, for instance. If, if the Reds were to win the World Series, you can imagine the the jubilation in Cincinnati and the and the parade that would take place following that kind of championship. Well, something like that took place um, uh, on occasions in the city of Rome. After the army uh, experienced a great victory uh, along some military campaign, and the whole city would, in a sense, throw a party. They would have these lavish parades where the, the conqueror, the general, or even a Caesar would be honored as he would lead this parade, and you would have the spoils of war on display and very often uh, you know the, the the conquerors in the chariot and being dragged before him are the uh, vanquished often soldiers and and the leaders of the enemy that had been uh, defeated in some glorious battle along with a lot of the people who would be um uh, in chains they would be pulled along in front of the conquering hero this was an important cultural and civic event. And everyone knew about these, these parades. So they were represented on Roman arches, reliefs, coins, statues, medallions, and paintings. Again, they, they were lavish celebrations. And what Paul is doing here um, is he's using this a metaphor to say that God is in some ways the one who had conquered him. He had conquered the apostle Paul, most notably on Paul's uh, journey to Damascus, the road to Damascus, where Christ appears to him and shows him that he's in fact um, on the wrong trail. He's persecuting Jesus. And there Paul's both converted and he's given this apostolic calling to serve Christ. And, And Jesus makes it clear that part of that calling is that Paul will suffer greatly now there's something else about these triumphal processions. Not only are these captives being you know, dragged along as, as part of the glory to the conqueror, but at the end of the parade, a tribute was offered to the Roman gods that were um, honored for giving the victory, and part of that tribute was the execution of a portion of the vanquished, a portion of the soldiers and the captives, um, probably a token amount, the rest would be sold into slavery. And what the apostle's saying is, he's using this as a metaphor for himself, to say that Christ has led me into this triumphal procession. And Paul is, is putting himself in the role of the captive, the one who is being led to death. And he's saying, and he's, he's saying, this is, this is part of, you know, to you Corinthians, this is actually part of my calling. Now he can speak of being led to death and, and what he's thinking about are the many ways in which he has suffered on behalf of Christ and on behalf of God's people, including just this mental unrest that he just recently experienced because of his deep concern for um, the Corinthians. Paul considers his life as over for the sake of following Jesus, for the sake of bringing glory and honor to him. And this also connects with one of the titles that Paul often uses for himself is not the apostle. But a servant. Now, that word servant can also be be translated slave. Literally, Paul regularly refers to himself as a slave of Christ. And the reason Paul can introduce this, this metaphor with a note of thanksgiving is because he recognizes that his life of service and suffering is being used to spread the knowledge of Christ like an aroma or a fragrance everywhere. And more specifically, he goes on to to, um, say that his life and the suffering that is so much at the center of his life and his ministry, it's being used by God, powerfully used. To those whom God is saving and pouring his grace upon, Paul's ministry, his suffering, his pouring out his life, it's like a fragrance of life. But to those who just look at Paul and they say, that is so stupid. Like, why are you, that just makes no sense. And not only does your life not make sense, um, what you're representing, the, a savior who dies, this, uh, this shameful death of a cross, that's also foolish. He says, so those who have that reaction, it's a, his life is a fragrance. It's, it's, this, it's this influence uh, of, of death. Paul uses uh, the metaphor, um, uh, again, to, to say that, and there are two ways that, that scholars look at this, what he's describing here, this aroma, this fragrance. One way is along these parades, it was also quite common, it was part of the practice, for incense to be spread as the parade is coming through the town, uh, through the, making its way through the city. And you can imagine for those captives, that incense is the smell of death. For those who are, you know, celebrating their, their generals and their, you know, their, their conquering heroes, um, it, it's the smell of life. And there's a second way this could be used, and that is Paul could be also referring to the aroma that flowed from the sacrifices, especially the sacrifices that the Jews offered um, all the way uh, through this temple period. And you would smell the, the roasting of the uh, of live beasts. And, and, um, and it was the aroma of a sacrifice being offered as an atonement on behalf of the people. In either way, whichever direction he's thinking, and maybe he's thinking, you know, both ways, Paul is using that metaphor to say, actually, my suffering, it's creating, it's spreading the knowledge of Christ like the the fragrance of the incense, like the aroma of a sacrifice. And my suffering is actually helping people um, understand all the better the suffering of Jesus, to understand all the more that it points back to his suffering and ultimately his death on the cross. Now, Paul understands uh, that no one in their own strength or flowing out of their fleshly desires wants, you know, you know, desires to be part of this triumphal procession of Christ, which calls for great suffering in their lives. And so he says, right at the end um, of verse 16, who is sufficient for these things? Uh, this kind of rhetorical question. Like, n- well, apart from God's grace, the answer is, nobody wants this. This is a work that, that God, by his grace, works in his people. So that when God's people are willing to pour themselves out, when they are willing to be spent, not for their own sake or their own pleasure and their own benefit, but for the sake and benefit of others. He says, this this is a sign of God's grace, because in our own flesh, no one is sufficient for this. Paul continues then into verse 17, and, and he says, Given uh, the tenor of his apostolic calling, a, a calling that included much suffering, he wants the Corinthians to know that he is not a fraud, as some were suggesting. Indeed, Paul says in verse 17, he was not a peddler of God's word. Now, many in the ancient world who worked in retail... That is in the world of buying and selling, usually on the streets. Well, they were not entirely well known for their honesty. <laughs> this was the ancient world, very often, this was a buyer beware society. And so um, when Paul uses this word peddler, This had very negative connotations. It it was a reference to the dishonest business practices that was unfortunately um, characteristic of many in the ancient world where they would use, you know, false weights or, or they would misrepresent the items that they were selling or, you know, they would make them out to be far more valuable than they actually were and so forth. That's what a peddler would do. In some sense, um, they were fraudulent. And what Paul is saying is, in my own ministry, my ministry of teaching and preaching the word, that I am not a peddler. Um, I am not dishonestly representing myself. And he's backing it up then, and he's saying, "Actually, this is where my suffering comes in. I'm not getting any benefit out of my ministry, if you understand what I'm saying. And furthermore, with respect to the Corinthians, Paul did, would not even take payment from them to avoid the charge of potentially, you know, um, uh, using his authority, his ministry of the word to self enrich himself. In order to avoid the charge, he refuses payment, uh, from the Corinthians. And so Paul can say that his ministry is sincere, that it is conducted in the sight of God. Paul says his conscience um, is and his ministry is under the, God's watchful presence in everything he does. You know, he does it under um, the face of God. And the result of this is that he is striving for a very high standard in his ministry and in his motives. And what Paul says here is so relevant to today. He's saying, for, he's saying this isn't, it shouldn't just be true for him, of course. It should be true of all of of Christ's followers, all those who are seeking to serve and minister in the name of Jesus, but especially so for leaders within the church and within Christian ministry. And that is, there should be consistency between the message and the man or woman. There should be consistency uh, so that your, your walk matches your talk. Um, and and what he's saying is, this is a high value for me, that as I minister, I am not, as, you know, now Paul's not a perfectionist. He's not saying I'm sinless or that we're required to be sinless. But he is saying, this is a high value for me to be consistent, that the message and the man are um, uh, uh, as consistent as possible. And this is um, very relevant for today. Just recently, following the death of a a hero of, of the church, Ravi Zacharias, very disturbing um, facts have come to light and confirmed by his own ministry. So this isn't um, uh, unsubstantiated charges from the outside that he was carrying on these very inappropriate, um, sexually immoral relationships with a number of women around the world. And so what's come to light is that he had this kind of hidden world that nobody knew about, and the result of this, of course, is that you know now his ministry is uh, the legacy of his reputation. His ministry um, are in shred; it's been shredded, it's been destroyed, um, and it's just so very sad. Okay, so the message that I want to say from from Ravi's situation is we don't know where he was spiritually at the very end. We trust that, you know, he, he was a saint, that he repented and, and is with the Lord. But, but all that to say is that Paul is saying, we do need to guard our lives. We do need to guard our hearts. As soon as we think that we're above, you know, temptation, that's when we are the most vulnerable to falling and failing. Now, again, Paul's no perfectionist. He knows that we will sin, and as a church, we know this. That's in part why every Sunday as we begin our service, we provide an opportunity for confession and for repentance. And as we move through ministry, what we want to be able to do more and more is to to be able to confess to seek accountability with one another, to live in community. That's one of the reasons why the church is so important, is as we live uh, close in relationship to with with one another, hopefully there are safeguards um, that help just in the way we we live our lives to protect us from the kind of hidden life uh, that Ravi manifested. And part of that was he just he traveled alone, you know, all around the world. And, and so these temptations uh, were very present and available to him uh, without needed accountability. So Paul is telling us that all of us need to take heed. All of us need to pursue sincerity of life, lived under the watchful gaze of Jesus himself, who sees all, he knows all. And we do so knowing that grace is available to all who confess their sins and repent of their sins by turning away from them. Now, just a couple um, uh, last thoughts. One, again, we may not be called to the extreme level of sacrifice and suffering uh, that seems to have been specially connected with the Apostle Paul's calling. However, with that said, we should see that part of our Christian calling is to cultivate the likeness of Jesus in our own lives. And this includes the regular practice of pouring our lives out for others. It's the regular practice of considering the needs of others as more important than our own. It includes the admonition to take up our cross daily and follow Jesus. And that means that the best Christian lives, the ones that have that aroma, that fragrance of Christ, is a life, again, that's being spent uh, for the sake of the kingdom, for the sake of Christ. Number two, one of the thoughts um, that I passed over, and I think that helps Paul as he considers his calling, that he's part of this triumphal possession. He's a a captive of Jesus, who's in some sense being led to his own death. What helps him in this is that he says in verse 14 that he is being led by God in Christ. That whatever it is, in other words, that he is being called to endure, it is all under the sovereign control the sovereign wisdom of God under the sovereign wisdom of Christ himself. And so he can do that with confidence that his suffering has great meaning, that it has purpose, and that God will, in fact, either deliver him in some cases, that's one way that God's glorified, from the, the, the adversity, or in most cases, granting the grace he needs to endure the suffering while at the same time as he, he models for us maintaining an attitude of thanksgiving in his walk with Christ. Paul can find comfort that ultimately he is always in Christ's hands. So let me just sum up this message in this way. This is a message about suffering. It's a message about considering the high calling of the cost of following Jesus. And Paul is telling us that God's power, that his presence, that presence that we long to be spread through our communities, it's often revealed as followers of Jesus take up their cross and follow Christ. Would you pray with me? Our God and our Father, we thank you. We thank you for your word. We thank you that it challenges us so very deeply to our core. And we pray, Lord, that as a church, we would smell more like Christ. That we would have the aroma of his love, of his sacrificial love for one another and for um, our neighbors and, and the community around us. We pray that we would be a fragrance of life to those you are calling and also of death to those who reject the message. And so, Lord, we pray for your spirit to fill us. We pray for your help and your grace in all of these things. And so we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.